Welcome to Connected, episode 200. Today is July 11th, 2018. I'm your host, Stephen Hackett, and I am not joined by either of my regular co-hosts. We'll get into that uh, in a second, but I have two very special guests with me. First, I want to introduce Casey Liss, newly minted free agent, uh, podcaster, video maker, uh, working on a secret app that he told me we can't talk about. Casey, how are you? Hello, I am doing well, thank you. I think you uh, did not give proper accolades to this being episode two hundred. I think this is a big deal. We should, we should, we should recognize that. And myself and our as yet unnamed uh, guest host, we have worked very hard for you to reach two hundred episodes, and you're welcome. <laughs> it's all built on the work y'all have done. Yeah, we're joined also by John Voorhees. Uh, John, of course, is over at MacStories.net and develops a couple of app- apps, including Blink and Associate. Uh, if you check those out, we'll put those links in the show notes. Uh, John, how are you? Ciao, Stephen. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I have to channel channel my good friend, Mr. Vitici, since he's not here. I'm doing really well. It's good to talk to you. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you all uh, for joining me. Uh, it's been a hectic week. I've been in the United States for uh, about 18 hours, so oh, wow. we're just going to see how this goes. <laughs> but we start the show not with complaining about how tired we are, but about follow-ups. You remember a couple of episodes ago, Federico was having trouble with his MacBook Pro. He installed macOS Mojave. All of us freaked out and told him he couldn't use that to record podcast on, so he put High Sierra on, trying to dual boot, and he got stuck. <laughs> trying to boot back into High Sierra. And I uh, gave him some help on the show, none of which actually helped. But it's sometimes with the Mac, it's the simple things that fix the issues. And a simple NVRAM reset got him booting into High Sierra. Again, a couple of people had suggested that. Uh, I wish I had thought of it since it's like uh, Mac troubleshooting 101. But uh, but there you go. So he's, he's dual booting. Uh, but John, I understand that his Mojave situation really... Uh, touched you in a personal way. It, it really did. I mean, I, it was funny to listen to you guys talk about it because I didn't realize exactly the full extent of the story that was going on. I had I had no idea that you were helping him with this partition, but you know, we've we'll talk about it in a little bit, but we're doing a, a special doing some special coverage of the App Story anniversary this week over on Mac Stories, and part of that is a series of interviews that we're doing on App Stories. And 5 minutes before we were about to record an interview with somebody I got a text from Federico about the situation with Mojave and how he wasn't going to be able to, he wasn't sure if his MacBook was going to work. This was probably five minutes before we started recording and about an hour before you and Mike and Federico started recording Connected. So <laughs> it was it was a little stressful. I actually happened to be out of town at the time visiting my parents' vacation house, and I was a little worried about my setup. Turns out his setup and the risks he was taking was far greater than the risks I was taking. But fortunately it all worked out in the end and we got our interview and everything, everything yeah. was fine. But, but yeah, it's a little, it's a little dicey doing that. I, I do not have it on a production machine. I have it on a spare Mac mini at home. Nice. Uh, aren't all Mac Minis spare computers at this point? <laughs> they, they are. Are they even computers anymore? I mean, it's, it's up for debate. The hand crank in the back really, <laughs> right. really makes you sad. <laughs> Uh, so I have uh, I've come home. I've decided to put iOS 12 on my iPhone 10. I just installed Same. it this morning. Uh, I put it on my iPad actually during my trip to the UK, and it's been fine. So I'm going to keep an eye on that. I think uh, the kind of we'll ch- keep checking in on iOS 12 as the summer goes along. But so far, it seems uh, it seems really stable. And uh, Mojave, uh, I feel like people have this this 
conception, I want to see the two of you think about it, that after a few betas, it's fine to put a new iOS beta like on your phone. And all of us have done it. Lots of people are doing it with the public beta. But with macOS, there's still the, I mean, John, you basically said is like, don't put it on a production machine. And that's what I tell people. That's what I recommend people uh, kind of live by. And I think it's just because the the Mac still for most people is where more uh, complex work happens. And I know my normal two hosts would argue with that, but like audio and video production, you, no one's really doing that on an iPad, not at scale like they do on the Mac. And uh, I think, you know, Mac OS is older, it's more complicated, it's got more things going on. And so I still feel like that journal advice is okay. Like don't put a Mac OS beta on a production machine um, ever probably, uh, but at least wait until late in the summer. But iOS, like I feel like we, we feel uh, like we're willing to take more risk. Is, is that still true? Is it because iOS is more exciting than Mac OS? What do you think, Casey? Uh, I, I would say that I don't typically put betas on my hardware. Um, I have never run a Mac OS beta ever. And I have gone back and forth on iOS betas. I did just install the iOS beta on my iPhone when I returned home from the UK. Jeez, it feels like 13 weeks ago, but it was actually Monday night and we're recording this uh, midday Wednesday. And the reason I did that is because I really wanted to play with Memojis and some of the other features that are in iOS 12. For example, I just used the do not disturb until the end of your calendar appointment um, for this uh, very podcast re- recording, which is super cool. But I have definitely been burned by running iOS betas in the past, like particularly I think it was iOS 5 where Notification Center debuted, which was a yeah. train wreck. And many of us made the mistake at WWDC of putting that on and it was a disaster and I deeply regretted it. I wanted to put this beta on for a long time, but I resisted until after I came back from our mutual uh, international trip because of all the things I want in the world to go wrong, it, You know, having my carry phone not operating properly while I'm overseas and not really in a position to do anything about it. That is not on my list of fun and exciting times. That That is, I don't remember the Tichy Scales negative end, but that is the, whatever the opposite of best I love you is, That that's what that situation nightmare. is. <laughs> nightmare. Nightmare. Yes, that is that perfect. That is a nightmare scenario. So I waited until I got home and so far over the course of a day, it seems like it's going well. I wouldn't say it seems any faster than iOS 11, but it certainly hasn't been murdering my battery. Everything seems to be working approximately correctly. Uh, So all seems basically well. But as general advice, I would say never install a macOS beta on anything that that you need to use for any reason. And I would strongly advise against doing any iOS betas unless you really are prepared to have a phone that's either physically warm or has poor battery life or something doesn't work properly. Yeah, I think I think that makes sense. The um, there's also the the idea of like if something goes wrong, how do you roll back, right? And in mm-hmm. and both systems, both on Mac and iOS, it's difficult to like get your data back to an old OS because your backups kind of get rolled into the new OS, so you can't really like restore a time machine, right? Like it, it gets funny, right? You you always have in your back pocket, I may need to rebuild this from zero. And uh, I haven't had to do that in a long time, but it's uh, 
it's unpleasant when it occurs. Yeah, I, I feel too, like on the Mac, that there's more legacy software and things that use funky, sometimes private APIs, for instance. I think yeah. Audio Hijack does that. And something like that, I feel like, is more likely to break than something on iOS. Even so, I'm pretty careful with iOS too. Usually I'll put it on an iPad because I feel the same way as I think you guys do, where I really want my carry phone to be solid all the time. But this year with the Memoji, I just had to do it. And I put, <laughs> I put iOS 12 on my, on my uh, carry phone before we even left San Jose. But I've left my iPad. Oh, great. Yeah, but I've left my iPad alone because um, I, wanted that, I wanted to have at least one solid device where I could do some writing without uh, having crashes and stuff. And I, unlike a lot of people, I know a lot of people have had the iOS 12 beta be really solid for them. It was great for me in beta 1, but beta 2, I was getting at least a dozen springboard crashes every single day. Uh, it's much better with beta three, but it was pretty tough there for a few weeks leading up to our trip to the UK. Another funny thing about that was when we were all in the UK, uh, I don't remember who it was, but somebody was lamenting that, oh, I shouldn't have put the beta on because my GPS is all out of whack. And, you know, it's telling me I'm five streets over from where I, where I'm actually standing. And, it was deeply amusing to me to hear that because I noticed that GPS coverage in London is just crummy, apparently. And I've heard similar things from other big cities where there's just not really good line of sight to the satellites. And right. so my GPS coverage on iOS 11 was also terrible, which made it very challenging to navigate these old, old, old roads that were built long before there was, you know, the the, the grid system that I'm used to in, say, Manhattan or something like that. So it was an adventure walking around London, but uh, but very, very fun, even on iOS 11. Uh, so we will uh, we'll keep checking in on the beta stuff. It's it's fun to keep track of it uh, each summer. Um, but we should take a break and congratulate uh, Mike. Mike and Adina got married this weekend. Yay! Yay! It was a real honor to be there. All three of us were in London, and it's just it was a real special time. So congratulations uh, to the Hurley family. But that doesn't really explain where Federico is. We didn't just leave him <laughs> at the reception. He may, he's still there partying. Yeah, uh, John, where where's Federico? Well, I don't know if if you maybe follow Federico on Twitter or Instagram, you might have seen some pictures of a Justin Timberlake concert. He got special VIP passes to the show. He was right up against the stage, and he had that. He had a connection with, with JT at one point, and Mr. Timberlake asked Federico to join his crew and be a roadie for the rest of the uh, world tour. So Federico is taking the summer off to tour with Justin Timberlake, and we'll be back maybe sometime in the fall. I don't know how long this, 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 uh, this concert tour is going. Do you guys have any idea what, what he's up to these days? I think it goes through at least October, so it's going to be a while. The sick thing is, with Federico, I am not sure if that story is real or not, because I could see it being completely real. And, and it's just, no, he, he really did befriend Justin Timberlake, and next thing you know, he's throwing caution to the wind and just following Justin on tour. Yeah, Very well could yeah. be. He's left, so he's left tune, the, in, tune in next week. He's left the show in good hands. You know, Mike and, Mike and Federico, they can go do their thing, and Casey, you and I will, mm -hmm. will take care of things. Sounds good to me. <laughs> uh, I want to talk a little bit about the MacBook Pro keyboard repair program. We covered this a couple of weeks ago. And I have been talking with a, a few different people who manage like fleets of Macs. So these people work in like big, big companies. And, you know, they're not purchasing like one or two MacBooks at a time. They're purchasing 10, 25, 50, 100 MacBooks at a time. And there had been a report about the the like repair rate for these MacBook Pros and the keyboards in particular, those numbers were reflected in the people I talked to managing these fleets that we are seeing more of these come back with keyboard issues. And so when Apple 
released the keyboard repair program details a couple of weeks ago, I reached back out to those sources and it's like, like, how does this make you feel? And uh, one particular conversation is really interesting, and I want to share some some about that. Is that they this person and their organization now felt that they could, and I'm putting this in quotes, safely buy the 2017 MacBook Pro, knowing that they'll have four years of coverage for the keyboard. Um, I don't know how often this organization rolls over their laptops. I believe it's like two to three years for some users and then longer for other users. So having that extra year really made them feel like it was a, a, a safer investment than uh, three years of Apple Care Plus, or if you're in a situation like I was in, where Apple tries to charge you for the keyboard and you have to like make a scene to uh, to not be charged. <laughs> um, I still agree with Marco's point that this should probably be a five-year program. I think that uh, these uh, these machines are are out and around, you know, for a long time now. We're joking about um, the Mac Mini and, and stuff. You know, like people hold on to these machines, and I think Apple should respect that. Um, but I find that really interesting that this kind of layers on some peace of mind for these types of purchasers, um, and it does make me wonder when the mid 2015. 15-inch laptop. So the notebook that Marco and I both use, you can go buy it today for like two grand from Apple. It has ports and the old keyboard and a MagSafe connector. Uh, When that will stop being for sale? My thought is that it would stop being for sale uh, when the, what seems like imminent, we're going to talk about this later, imminent MacBook Pro update, when that happens. Uh, But what do you guys think about this? Like if, I think both of you have pretty modern Mac notebooks, but if you didn't, would this repair program make you feel more comfortable about buying something? You know, I don't think it would really, just because there's a hassle factor on top of this. I mean, it's nice that you can get these Macs keyboards replaced, but if you're administering a large fleet of computers, you're still going to have to deal with the complaints of the users and returning them to Apple and doing all of that. And that's a lot of administrative overhead. I mean, I, I get that it's better to have it than not, but but I, I, I don't think I would be entirely comfortable buying these computers in large quantities. I've got a 2015 still at home myself, but I've used day-to-day a 20, late 2016 MacBook Pro, and the keys do... I've never had a key stick and not be able to come unstuck, but they still do stick from time to time. It just happened a few days ago. You know, My S keys stopped working, and, and I was able to jiggle it free, and it was fine, but... Uh, Every time I see a speck of dust come anywhere near my computer, it starts <laughs> starts making me shake. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. I actually had at my jobby job the uh, beloved 2015 MacBook Pro, Retina MacBook Pro, that, that you and Marco love so darn much. So that got turned in, um, what was it, last week. And right now my home setup is a, what is this, a 2015 iMac? They're about something like that. I don't even remember. It's been around a while. Uh, late 2015 iMac. Um, and then I have a MacBook adorable that I bought a little over a year ago. And I, I am in a position of, uh, of privilege in the sense that I have two computers that are basically dedicated to me. So if this MacBook just decides to have a keyboard issue and if I can't fix it myself, I still have an iMac at home, but that's a very, a very recent thing for me. Like up until a couple of years ago, I only ever had one computer and, and to be without a computer, for several days while it's being shipped off to Tennessee or Kentucky or whatever it is that the, that all these repairs happen um, and then wait for it to get repaired and come back. Like that's, 
that is not cool. And so, yeah, that's wonderful that it's not something I have to pay for. But that is, especially if I was a one one computer kind of guy, I would not want to be buying any of these. Plus, as, as Stephen alluded to earlier, there's been a lot of rumblings over the last 24 to 48 hours about new hardware coming sooner rather than later. So at this point, I would I would hold out if at all possible. Yeah, I think the uh, that's part of the like large purchaser conversation is that Organizations like this have, you know, a file cabinet with a handful of, of notebooks that they can deploy if someone's machine is getting repaired, right? They can put their data on it, they can image it with their stuff, and then swap it back out when the repaired machine That's a good point. comes That's a good back. Point. But if you're a, an individual, you know, and it's your one laptop, say you're a student, it's not great. And I don't want to harp on the keyboard problem today, but I found that sort of conversation really interesting from the uh, the volume purchaser. Uh, you know, I, I spent time in that world for a long time in my career before Relay, and I kind of agree with them that I feel like I'd be more apt to purchase this machine now for my users, knowing that there's a safety net. Uh, I still wouldn't be thrilled uh, until Apple released a machine that actually fixed the problems, but knowing that you've got an extra year, that it's a, a known issue, where you're not going to have to fight with a genius bar, uh, that that I think is uh, is all good. So we have a lot more to talk about today, but first I want to take a break and tell you about our first sponsor. This episode of Connected is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and more. Maybe you want to create an online store. Maybe you want to have a portfolio to show off your work. Or maybe you want to be like Casey and write a blog. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. Here's the best thing. There's nothing to install. There's no patches to worry about. No upgrades are needed. You don't have to worry about that admin stuff because Squarespace has it covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They allow you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. And all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for all screen sizes to help you show off your great ideas. We use Squarespace at FM to power our blogs. We have new show announcements or we're doing a live show or something like that. We can go in, uh, add the content, add links, add images, embed videos, and it's all really easy. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial today with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com connected. When you do decide to sign up, use the offer code CONNECTED to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for this show. Once again, that's squarespace.com connected and the code CONNECTED to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for their support. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So I know that I am in the business of celebrating anniversaries of Apple products, but this week, <laughs> everyone's in the business of celebrating Apple product anniversaries. Uh, yesterday, July 10th, 2018, was the 10-year anniversary of what was then known as the iPhone App Store. Of course, now that App Store has has jumped to the iPad and uh, some people sell iPod Touches and it has many cousins, right? The tvOS app store, iMessage app store. Uh, there's that weird thing embedded in the watch helper app. Lots of lots of app stores, lots of things to talk about, but it all started 10 years ago. And John, I know uh, that over on Mac Stories, you guys have been doing a whole bunch of stuff. So why don't you share a little bit maybe about what y'all are doing and sort of the idea behind it all. Sure. I, I don't know if you've noticed, Stephen, but we tend to write about apps once in a while on Mac Stories. And uh, 
So it seemed particularly appropriate that we celebrate the App Store anniversary, the 10th anniversary this week in a variety of ways. And very early in the year, Federico was thinking about what 2018 was going to hold for Mac stories. And he decided he wanted to do something really special for this anniversary. And when we talked about it, I was immediately excited because it really is kind of at the heart of what we do. And we wanted to take the opportunity not just to talk about the App Store in terms of the the sheer numbers, because by any stretch of imagination, this you know the App Store has been a phenomenal ex- success from 500 apps or so when it started to over two million today. But also to talk about the stories behind those apps, and not just the developers who make the apps, but also how the App Store has changed the business of selling software, how users relate to software, and how apps have changed our lives. So what we've got going on over at Mac Stories this week, we started on Monday with um, an article about jailbreaking and the sweet solution web apps that Scott Forstall <laughs> tried to sell to everyone back in 2007. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we started with that, and we started off with an episode of App Stories where Federico and I told a few of the stories that have, uh, about how the App Store has affected our careers and our lives. But each day, we're rolling out additional one or two st- feature stories on Mac Stories about different aspects of the App Store. We've done, uh, we've done accessibility. We've done the business of making apps. We've got other things coming, including stuff about the game industry. And then with App Stories, each of the days, you know, we usually publish that podcast on Mondays. And so for every day between the two, next two Mondays, we're publishing an extra episode with interviews with developers and designers about all sorts of different parts of the App Store. So, so far, we've released two of them, an interview with Craig Hockenberry and James Thompson about the very earliest days in day one of the App Store, and then one with Marco Arment and David Smith about building a sustainable career from independent app development. We've got another four of those to go. So it's been a it's been an interesting week, and so far I think people have been enjoying it. Yeah, I know I have. Uh, selfishly, I, I wrote one of the things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. We have a bunch of people working on it. The whole the whole team plus Stephen Aquino wrote the accessibility article today. It's uh, it's there's a lot of people involved. Yeah, uh, the one I wrote was about basically the app, how the app store itself has changed in ten years. So like. A bunch of these screenshots I made because I have iPod touches running things like <laughs> iOS 4. Um, it's you really <laughs> pretty remarkable to me looking through this. I'm just skimming through the article now again. How little the App Store changed for a long time. Yes. That those tabs across the bottom featured categories, top 25. Um, they tried genius stuff, which was like alg- like the algorithm trying to guess what apps you would want based on apps you've already bought. That got downplayed pretty quickly. Uh, my personal favorite was Near Me in iOS 7. <laughs> so um, for me, it was like my local newspaper, some local news stations, the uh, movie theater company that owns all the theaters in the Memphis area. That, again, very quickly went away. <laughs> um, and now, of course, with iOS 11, the App Store is is markedly different with by all accounts, a very large editorial team with a very uh, demanding editorial schedule with the Today screen 
having stories. I'm flipping through it now. Stories and collections of apps and features and interviews. They broke up games and apps into separate tabs with separate top lists, which I think is really good. And it really feels to me like the iOS 11 app store um, under Phil Schiller, who was put in charge in the app store in, what, 2015, I think, that it it is now much more than just a, a shelf, right? You go and, and you search and you pick the app that you want. But the app store has become a destination in a way that it was not before uh, with this editorial push. And I, for one, really enjoy it. Uh, not that I, I don't think I'm downloading any more apps than I was before, necessarily. But seeing the work that goes into this uh, helps, you know, it, it helps be excited about uh, about the ecosystem that the iPhone in particular enjoys. And with, what, 2 million apps now, this helps bring things to the surface that you may not you may not see before. Just this weekend, there was a feature about uh, podcast clients on iOS. And of course, I had most of them installed for work, but there were a few in there that I wasn't familiar with. And so I went through and kind of checked them out, seeing what people are doing. And um, even right now, someone, uh, Pasta Boy in the chat room, I'm downloading less, but opening the app store more. And uh, I think that's a, a, a pretty profound thing. Uh, what about you, Casey? Did iOS 11 to the App Store, did it change how you interact with the App Store any as a consumer? Not really. Um, I found that now that I've had an iPhone for quite a long time, and, and we'll talk about that more later, I very rarely just go spelunking through the App Store trying to find something else to try. Um, I, I think I speak probably for all three of us in saying that my life is way too busy to just sit there and kind of figure out, oh, what's a new game I could try? Or, oh, let me rejigger my to-do management for the 85th time. I don't know about you two, but I don't have time for that. And so um, I very rarely go to the App Store for really any reason other than to see if there's updates that that I need because maybe an app is not functioning the way I want, or I've heard rumors of some new feature coming out in some app that I already have. And so I was thinking as you were talking, like, where do I, what would cause me to download a new app these days? And I would say that that Twitter is my app store in the sense that when I hear some rumblings about a brand new app, or actually, you know, uh, Mac Stories is another great example of this. When I see a review of some new app that's supposedly really good, that would lead me to the app store. But I don't find myself going there just for funsies, just to see what's going on, which is not, by the way, an indictment about anything that the that that is happening on the app store i think what's going on in the app store with this whole editorial team and the, and the the features they've been doing and the art for them i think it's all great i really and truly do it's just that of of the ways in which i spend my downtime going to the app store is not really on that list well casey you know in reinstalling or installing a new task manager every few weeks is kind of my job so i i, <laughs> I do do that a lot now but yeah i i understand and i i go to the app store a lot it's kind of a occupational hazard for me too. But <laughs> Stephen, one thing that you said uh, really struck me, which was, you know, the, I think with a project like this, it's helpful every now and then to just kind of step back and look at the long-term narrative of things like the app store and see what Apple has done and where it's going. And I think you're absolutely right that for a long time, there wasn't a lot of change in the App Store. And I, I just published this morning the article about the business of making apps and selling apps on the App Store. And that's the thing that when I put together a timeline really struck me was that it felt like for a long time, Apple was just trying to catch up with the 
unexpected popularity of the App Store, that it was all infrastructure and making sure, you know, the apps downloaded and things worked. And it wasn't until Phil Schiller took over and starting in 2016, they started doing things like rolling out a broader implementation of subscriptions and the search ads and a bunch of other things, which, you know, I I know that not everybody likes those things or agrees that they're the right direction for the App Store, but they are, I think, a sign that the App Store is maturing and that what we're seeing now is more of a a policy change and kind of a, a manifestation of the direction that Apple wants to take the App Store in. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, especially as the the new this new approach spreads, right? So we see with iOS 12 in Apple Books, we see more of this sort of stuff coming. You can see a world where uh, this sort of editorial push is obviously coming to the Mac, but like, what if we saw it in like the Apple Store app? Like, what if Apple applied this sort of work? to the, uh, you know, to, to various parts of its business. And I, I think we will continue to see that. I, I'm not sure we're ever going to see like editorial in the tvOS app store, rest in peace, but you know, maybe you never know. TV, TV has an app store. Who knew? Uh, yeah, there it is. Uh, so there's, a, there's a thing going around the, uh, the internet and we are going to take part of it about the earliest apps that we use, the early apps that we bought 10 years on looking through this, I had forgotten about many of these apps. Many of them cannot mm-hmm. be downloaded anymore from the store for one reason or another. Maybe they didn't make the 32-bit cutoff. Maybe the developer pulled them, whatever. Uh, but there are a few things in here that I think we all still use from those early days. And uh, we're going to talk about some of those. So, Casey, what what early iPhone apps still grace your home screen or, or maybe stashed in a folder now? Yeah, so I was looking through the first couple of screens of um, purchases in the App Store, and we're going to talk more about that in a minute, just like you said. But in terms of stuff that I downloaded real early on that I still use from time to time, I took the first six I could find. Um, The first one was iTunes Remote. That seems to be extremely popular amongst many of the people I've spoken to. to. To set the kind of scenario at the time, my recollection is... I did not have an Apple TV. In fact, I'm not sure the Apple TV even existed at this point. And whether or not it did, what I did have was an Apple Airport Express hooked up to my stereo. And so this was pre-AirPlay. And what I would do is I had my computer sitting on my network with iTunes running. And I had my Airport Express sitting also on my network uh, connected to my stereo. And what I would do is I would use the iTunes remote to say, hey, iTunes on my computer, go ahead and play such and such album on the Airport Express, which would then get it to come out via the stereo. At the time, this was unreal. This was magical because I could be downstairs, my computer upstairs, they're all connected via some sort of network, be it Wi-Fi or wires or whatever, and I could get music to come out of my stereo that was being streamed off my computer. It was amazing. And you can still do all of that today, as far as I know. Stephen, interrupt me when you're ready, but not many people do because AirPlay is so much easier. And and I don't even have a, a HomePod in the house. I haven't even really played with AirPlay too much, but But even just regular AirPlay will do a lot of this so much easier. Um, My other list of apps, Shazam, which I still use from time to time. I I guess it's built into Siri, so I guess I could remove it. But to be honest, I don't even know how to kick it off. I guess, what am I listening to or something? I don't don't know if it is yet or not. I mean, Apple bought Shazam 
less than a year ago, like pretty recently. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not actually sure if you can ask Siri uh, what music is is playing, but uh, I don't know. John, do you know? No, I don't. But it's the the deal is not closed yet because it's being investigated by the European Union. So I, I oh, I didn't uh, yeah, yeah, it's not. It's still not a hundred percent official yet. Oh, all right. So moving on, uh, my AT and T, which is meh, but you know, I I switched from Verizon to AT and T because of the iPhone. And this was at the time, this was a terrible decision because at the time Verizon was everywhere and AT&T was effectively nowhere. And so um, for the first year or two that I had an iPhone, my AT&T was used less to check data or, or call or text message usage. Um, and more to just mark places where I didn't have service. I was actually just talking to Aaron the other day and remembering about what it was like when I had only 200 text messages per month. And I remember begging her to, you know, oh, don't you think I could upgrade to the unlimited text message per month plan? Don't you think it's time? I'm always bumping up to my 200 messages each month. Do you guys remember those days or did you always have like unlimited messages from day one? No, I remember those days. It was, yeah, I, I had limited text for a long time. Yeah, I think I probably did too. And then now it's so funny to think about like iMessage just uses your data. Like I don't. Yep. Yeah, right. I don't know the last time I thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, my last three, uh, Facebook is obvious. I still use it from time to time. I very rarely post, but I do look. You know, once every day, every couple of days, to see what like high school friends are up to and things like that. Uh, Dropbox. I don't use the app very often on iOS, but Dropbox is still a critical part of my life uh, every single day, mostly on the Mac, and so that's still there. And finally, One uh, Password which I, I got on that train reasonably early. It was a little on, over a year after I bought my phone. Um, and so I had an old, old, old version of 1Password with a hilariously ancient-looking icon. Um, and so that, that was my f- top six that I could come up with that I feel I still use from time to time today. Yeah, I think, uh, I think your set is probably pretty representative, at least of, like, nerdy iPhone users. <laughs> um, John, what about you? Yeah, I, it was interesting to look at Casey's list because I actually do have my AT and T on my phone right now, and I'm not exactly sure why. I think you know <laughs> it, it's one of those things where you go to check your bill every now and then, and I think they they con you into downloading it, but I, I don't really use it. Um, I, mine, I guess, are Google, and that's used primarily to authenticate when I'm signing in with two-factor authentication into a into a Google account. I don't use the app for searching by itself usually. Uh, Drafts, which not a first day app, but an app that's been on my phone since it came out and it's on version 5.3 now. Uh, and, and I use it for all sorts of, you know, just ephemeral text, putting, creating drafts of various things that might end up in an email or a tweet or, or wherever. And then TweetBot. TweetBot has been my main Twitter client since I started using an iOS device, I think. Uh, I have used Twitterific from time to time, but TweetBot is the one that I have always come back to in the end. And Instagram. Uh, I am, I think, a more recent, heavier user of Instagram. For a long time, it was off my phone, but I had it in the early days, abandoned it for a while, and now I've in the last six the nine months have been back into it. And that's that's been around for a pretty long time, too. Yeah, you know, to build on that very quickly, I was, you know, spending a lot of time on Instagram, particularly when I was overseas. I don't know if it's just me. It sounds like maybe not, John. But the more 
I the more time I spend on Instagram these days, the more I enjoy it. Whereas the more time I spend, I know this is not new, but the more time I spend on Twitter, the more I hate myself. And just the other day, I was sitting there scrolling through Instagram, and and I thought to, and I thought to myself. I just really, really like this app and everything about this app makes me happy. I mean, obviously there's things I could complain about with regard to the app, like, you know, the, the algorithmic timeline and things like that. But by and large, there's nothing about Instagram, be it the app, the community, etc., that really just gets on my nerves. Yet Twitter, almost everything about it gets on my nerves. And yet, like a junkie, I still go to it all the time. But everything about Instagram makes me happy these days. And it was one of those moments where I wasn't just, I wasn't like evaluating my usage of Instagram. I was just sitting there playing with the app. And I thought to myself, man, do I really love Instagram. And I feel like they've they've brought in new features. You know, they, they've basically aped Snapchat left and right, but in a way that an old man like me can understand. And so I, I don't use Instagram stories during my day-to-day life, but Oh man, when I'm traveling, it's so much fun to kind of like be able to share that in a fun way and in an ephemeral way that disappears. So everything about Instagram, I mean, it went on my phone relatively early after it was released. And I I just love that darn app so much. Yeah, I I think Instagram is one of those places for me right now where I go out of my way to find more interesting things to follow. Whereas Twitter, Twitter, it's all about filtering out the noise and the unpleasantness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all I do is create mutes when I'm on Twitter. And when on Instagram, I try to find people to follow. So I mean, I think there's something to that for sure, Casey. Yep. Yep, completely agree. I mean, mine, mine follows in line with y'all's um, iTunes remote one password, both very early, uh, as well as Instapaper, which I still use. Um, they are unfortunately still not available in a bunch of European countries because they are not GDPR compliant. Um, I think uh, I, I tweeted about that when we were traveling and a lot of people were like, oh, my God, what are they doing with your data? You got to leave. And I don't know if it's so much that or is that the Instapaper just doesn't have a staff of people working on it anymore. I don't know how many people are working on it. It was acquired by Pinterest. Um, at least one of the developers who was working on it under its previous owner went with it, but it just doesn't seem like Instapaper has the the horsepower behind it it once did, which is uh, worrisome. As It's been on my home screen as long as it's been around, in the same spot, actually. And it's uh, it's an app I use almost every day. I don't know what I would do if it went away. But uh, now that's in the in the back of my head. Um, but, you know, a lot of these other apps, um, they've sort of come and gone. And I think that's okay, right? I think, I think that part of the story of the App Store is you have these, like, core, well-known apps that are there f- for the whole time that you really rely on every day. You put on your home screen once, and they're there for years and years. Then there are other apps that, you know, I think especially games or little, like, utilities or social media networks that don't make it that you use for a period of time and then you replace it with something else or that thing just sort of goes away quietly. And I think that both of those types of apps are important for the App Store ecosystem on a whole because it uh, they serve different needs. And I think with things like subscriptions, Apple is trying to get more developers to a place where I can download this app and I can use it for years and years because the developer has the financial uh, ability to work on it, you know, for years and years and, and isn't going to be stuck abandoning it because they can't afford to work on it. And so I, I wonder, you know, now uh, in another 10 years, you know, what apps are we downloading in 2018 that we're still going to be using in 2028? And that's really hard to guess. I, I don't want to guess here, but uh, I think about this sometimes just wondering like, you know, is something like Instapaper or 1Password 
Did it grow to the size that they did because they were there on day one? Is that impossible now? But then you look at something uh, like Instagram or something like, I don't know, like Overcast that was years later, but now is really large because it's a good app with, you know, people care about it. Developers care about it. And uh, I, I just, I think those dynamics, while they're different than they were in 2008, I think some of the core stuff may always be the same. Yeah, I agree with that, Stephen. I, I found, I was a little surprised at how few apps I have today that I'm still using that, that I used 10 years ago. But they do turn over quickly, and there's always the latest and greatest. I mean, Instapaper is probably one of the first third-party apps that I ever purchased on iOS, at least you know as soon as it came out, because I was using it when it was still a web service. And I tried out Pocket maybe 18 months ago because I haven't been real confident that Pinterest is really going to support Instapaper, and I think some of the GDPR stuff tends to support that. Uh, and I, I haven't gone back, but it, it was one of my early favorites. All right, so we got some more stuff to talk about, but we have uh, another another break here. This episode of Connected is brought to you by our friends at Casper. Casper is the company focused on sleep. They're dedicated to making you exceptionally comfortable one night at a time. Look, you spend a third of your life asleep. If you spend a third of your life doing anything else, you'd want to make sure it was the best it could possibly be, and that's why you need Casper. Casper mattresses are perfectly designed for human beings, with and they're engineered to soothe and support your natural geometry. It's got all the right support in all the right places. So what goes into making a Casper mattress so comfortable, you may ask? Well, I'm here with an answer. They combine multiple supportive memory foams for a quality mattress with just the right sink and bounce. Casper mattresses are designed and developed in the U.S., and their breathable design helps to regulate your body temperature throughout the night. And with over 20,000 reviews and an average rating of 4.8 stars, Casper is quickly becoming the Internet's favorite mattress. And you can be sure of your purchase because Casper has this 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. They deliver it directly to your door, and if there's any reason you don't love it, Casper has a hassle-free return policy. My wife and I have had a Casper mattress for several years now. It comes in this box. You all have this story. You open up the box in the room you want the mattress, and it sort of rolls out, pulling in air and sort of expanding on its own. I think we put it on Periscope when we did it. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and we've enjoyed it uh, every every night since. In fact, last night was our, our first night at home in a couple weeks, and I actually remarked to her how nice it was to be uh, back at home on our own mattress after whatever it was we had in that Airbnb. You, dear listener, can get $50 towards select mattresses by going to casper.com slash connected and using the code connected at checkout. Terms and conditions apply, but that's casper.com slash connected, offer code connected to get that $50 off select mattresses. We thank Casper for their support of this show and Relay FM. So the the App Store was really only one third of what Apple launched uh, the f- this week in July of 2008. It was a very, very busy week. You had the iPhone 3G, you had the App Store, you had iPhone OS 2, and you also had Mobile Me, uh, which um, uh, in hindsight, you know, didn't go super well. I actually, just spent some time. 
uh, writing a deal about uh, the legacy of Mobile Me and sort of how it earned that legacy. Because uh, I think people, uh, you know, sort of like joke at it and, and joke about it, but really, like, it was really pretty bad. Like, they had outages and like data loss and stuff. It wasn't good. Um, but I, I was reminded of all this uh, and thinking about this date in, in 2008. I was working as a Mac genius, and I've told the story before, but basically, all these things launched more or less at the same time. You had the new iPhone, you had the new software, you had the App Store. I believe Mobile Me was like a couple of days later, but basically, basically the same time. And Apple had instituted a new sales policy. So with the first iPhone, we all remember those long lines, right? Like news helicopters circling Apple stores. Uh, then you just basically you you bought an iPhone and you walked out with it, and then you plugged it into iTunes on your Mac or PC at home and activated it at home. And of course, we all know that AT and T activation servers basically fell over. They couldn't keep up with the demand. But hey, you were at home. It was no big deal. But it was still pretty bad. Right? People waited days to activate their phones. And remember, this phone was only sold in the US. In very, very select countries, it was not the worldwide phone that it is today. The iPhone 3G was different. You had to activate the phone in the store. The iPhone 3G did roll out to more countries than the original phone. That was something Apple was very proud of in its keynote. But I think this was partially to cut down on people buying these phones and then selling them on the gray market or you know, selling them to people in other countries and then having them jailbroken and all this stuff. Apple wanted more control. So they had in-store activation. And that was really great if you were on the East Coast when the phone went on sale. But as time marched across the continent, and those servers had more and more demand on them. Even by the time it got to central time, uh, where I was, basically you couldn't activate a phone. And it was part Apple's fault. It was part AT&T's fault. But we had all these people stuck in the store, let alone everyone trying to like figure out the app store. And then people coming in a few days later or a week later saying, I you know, signed up for the MobileMe free trial and it ate all my contacts, or I haven't gotten email in two days. What's the deal with that? Like all of these issues. And it was really, I think, a learning moment for Apple. There's this email from Steve Jobs uh, about this, uh, and it's about MobileMe in particular, but in it he says, you know, maybe we should have even rolled out MobileMe slower. Clearly it was a mistake to do all of this at once. And we see Apple now handling this much better, where they have, uh, for the last several years, released a new iOS version, you know, a few days before the new iPhones start shipping, right? So they have sort of two waves, they have people upgrading old phones, and they have new phones activating, sort of divorcing those dates a little bit. Uh, you see on the um, on the App Store itself, developers can select a rolled uh, release schedule. Um, they've really built in more tools to help this sort of thing from all crashing down at once. But MobileMe was bad. Like, take all the launch stuff away. Like, it was really buggy. It was slow. It had lots of outages. Again, very uh, buggy release. They were able to overcome a lot of that in its three-year lifespan, but clearly the damage was done. There's this joke when they introduced iCloud, Steve Jobs said, why would you want this? We're the people who brought you MobileMe. And, like, developers are laughing at WBDC. But it's true. Apple had a real problem. And iCloud actually inherited a lot of those problems. The core mail contacts calendars for MobileMe were rolled into iCloud. Um, 
But you know, iCloud's been around a long, uh, a long time now, and I'm curious what parts of iCloud the two of you use. Uh, but before we get there, like, were you guys around for the mobile me days? Did you experience some of these outages, or has it just been like a, a, a nightmare you've heard about other people? I never really used mobile me. I was aware of it. I was certainly around during this time, but I never really used it. Um, I pretty sure I have a me.com email address, but uh, I, I used it as little as possible because I heard so many problems with it. And I don't really, or I didn't at the time, trust mobile me to do any of the sort of syncing things that I would want to do. You know, I, I was using Gmail for my email, um, and I still am, although it's Google Apps on my domain, domain. And so I didn't really need an email address. The only thing I maybe could have used was contact syncing, but I just did that, you know, via I just did that via um, iTunes, which actually worked okay, and I'd never really dabbled with it at all. Did you, John? Yeah, I did. I actually was a .Mac subscriber back in the day. I used that, and then I, I moved over to, yeah, I, I have a .Mac address, and I switched over to MobileMe and had some of the problems. I mean, syncing would get out of whack fairly regularly, and you'd have to do the dance, which unfortunately got inherited by iCloud, where you'd have to sign out on all your devices and then sign back in one at a time and try to figure out which one had the canonical information to make sure that everything was preserved and synced properly across devices. Um, I, I didn't have data loss or some of the real horrible things you heard about at the time, but I had a family plan for it and had, uh, you know, it was a lot fewer devices back in those days, but at least an iMac and my wife's iPhone and iPod Touch, you know, things like that on it. And it, it worked okay, except for when I would have to do that, that special log out of everything dance and try to get everything syncing again. Yeah, I, I used it. Uh, I, too, had been a, a dot .Mac subscriber, and I had a lot of these issues, but I sort of powered through. I eventually got fed up, though, and basically moved everything to mm-hmm. Gmail. And that's still where, where all, of my, all of my stuff is today. The idea that all this stuff would basically sync wirelessly, coming from a world where we were all plugging into iTunes, like move our calendar appointments over, uh, it really did seem like the future, but... Apple was ahead of the curve, but only by a little bit. Very quickly, you could do stuff with your Google account with third-party apps, and then uh, Apple basically baked that in. And now, really, if you have a, a, a Gmail account with contacts and calendars and stuff, it's really a first-party thing on the iPhone and the iPad, right? Like iOS and the Mac, you just plug in your credentials and all your stuff just syncs. And I think that's really great that Apple supports those those services. Yeah, you don't get certain features. You don't get push email but some of that's on Google, some of it's on Apple. I was going to say, my, my iCloud email is pretty much unused. I mean, I, I have it, but it's not used by many people. It's it's really Gmail for me, both a personal account and then a work account. Yes, yeah, so, so let's talk about that a little bit. So uh, like I said, I use iCloud for a lot of stuff. Uh, iCloud um, photos in particular. I, I use iCloud for a bunch of syncing stuff. Um, I do not really use iCloud file stuff. I call it iCloud Drive because everyone I work with uses Dropbox because I need shared folders. Dropbox basically is the file system on my computers. I use Apple Music. Um, but I do use Gmail for my personal email and, and work stuff. Um, and that is really because of the rules that you can server-side rules you can do in Gmail. They're far superior spam filtering. It got to a point where my iCloud email was just really unusable. 
for spam reasons, and I couldn't direct things into folders the way I wanted to on the server side. And uh, I don't know if they've really improved that. I really haven't gone back because I'm, I'm happy with Gmail. Um, but all the sort of sticky stuff, like the kind of glues the Mac and iPhone together, all that I'm using iCloud. Uh, and I've been pretty happy with it over the last couple of years. I've had issues here and there. It's still too ambiguous to troubleshoot. It's sort of a, a mystery box. Like all you can do is tell it not to sync anymore and resync or sign out and sign back in. There's no real troubleshooting. But uh, that's the way of the world now, I guess. And I, I think that iCloud truly has outgrown the complaints of the early days of iCloud, but especially the complaints of Mobile Me. And I think it's pretty solid for most people. Uh, what about you, Casey? So I have been using iCloud um, Contact Sync for as long as I can remember. And up until about a year ago, I want to say it was working flawlessly. About a year ago, I had that thing that everyone else seems to have where basically all of their contacts got duplicated. And I'm still over time weeding through all of them, trying to kind of merge and consolidate all of these things. It may have been user error for all I know. I I, I don't think I did anything that would cause that problem, but that was very frustrating. Um, but in terms of just general, you know, what Apple Cloud stuff do I use? I actually dabbled just a smidge with iCloud Drive uh, the other day. In fact, we were talking, I believe, before we started recording about AirDrop, and it occurred to me that I couldn't get AirDrop working on iOS 12, despite what I think I told you earlier, Stephen. And I ended up sending a picture to myself. In fact, it might have been a picture of you that I put on Instagram uh, via iCloud Drive. And so... I've been slightly dabbling with iCloud Drive recently. I have a free account on Dropbox, and I don't see myself moving to iCloud Drive entirely. I've heard enough horror stories about it that it scares me. But as an accessory, I, I'm using iCloud Drive from time to time. I'm also putting some documents in there from time to time. Um, and the other thing that I've used a lot and have really had no particular issue with is iTunes Match. And for those of you who don't recall, this came out a few years ago now. And what this was, was you uploaded all of your music to Apple or really any of the music that Apple couldn't match within their own, you know, Apple, uh, iTunes music store. You would upload everything that, that they couldn't match and you could stream it and or download it from all your other devices. And it works out really nicely as your own like personal Apple music or like Spotify setup. And I still do use that. I don't listen to iTunes music, iTunes music that often. I typically listen to Spotify, but it is nice to have my entire library available as long as I, I'm not maybe, I don't know, flying over the Atlantic for some reason or, or another. So I am pretty light on Apple Cloud services, but the ones I use tend to work really, really well. So I don't know, win some, lose some. What about you, John? So I use iCloud Drive a little bit. I mean, for instance, I let things like Ulysses and Bear do their thing, syncing between devices using iCloud Drive and, and save their documents in there. And I'll also use numbers. I don't, I don't like Excel. I'm, I've, you know, Microsoft apps still give me a little bit of the willies. I think it's from working back as a lawyer back in the day and having to deal with windows, <laughs> but, but so I use numbers. And so there's spreadsheets I have that I share with Federico, for instance, uh, that are shared over that. But I also am 
painfully aware of a problem I think Mike had maybe about a year ago where he lost a bunch of pages documents. So I have a Hazel rule set up on my Mac that's always running that will look at that numbers document and copy it out to Dropbox every now and then so that I've got I've got kind of like belt and suspenders to make sure that that works. And it has, I haven't had those same problems, but I, I've got the, I guess I've got the, the peace of mind of knowing it's there. But for the most part, I'm using Google services, whether it's Docs, Sheets, or Forms for things like podcasting and the Mac Stories, uh, cl- the Club Mac Stories newsletters and things like that. I'm also using Dropbox for the vast majority of things like screenshots, various project files, sharing project files with Federico and other Mac Stories team members. Uh, those are the big things. And I guess GitHub too, because we the way we deal with editing as a team is we sync everything through GitHub and that way everybody has access to it and can make changes and, and see the changes. Uh, those, those are probably the primary ones that I use. I love that you can mix and match as you need to. You can use a bunch of Apple stuff and like one Google or one Dropbox thing, or you can be all in a Google, but just use a little bit of iCloud. I think Apple's done a really good job at and making those services and the apps they interact with on their platforms sort of all get along for people who live in multiple camps. Um, I don't even know if it's better if you use like all Apple stuff or all Google stuff. I think it's totally fine to be to mix and match them as as you see fit. For instance, my calendars are on iCloud because I have a lot of shared calendars with uh, with my significant other and the family stuff. And so it's nice to be able to have that on my device and I don't have to worry about is it Google is it iCloud like it all just kind of is there together it's funny you say that I actually um, treat my Google calendar as the family calendar which is probably not the most efficient way of doing this and what I do is I actually sign into my Gmail account again it's actually Google apps for my domain but I sign into my Gmail account on Aaron's phone but only turn on calendars for that account and then that is our shared family account. And I think the smarter way of doing this would probably to be embrace iCloud. But at this point, we've been doing this for like over a decade and I'm not about to change anything. You know what I mean? But I have a very similar setup except on Google instead of Apple. All right. Well, we got some more stuff to talk about. We're almost there though. We have one final sponsor and that is Linode. This episode of Connected is brought to you by Linode. With Linode, you'll have access to a suite of powerful hosting options with prices starting as little as $5 a month. You'll be up and running with your own virtual server in the Linode cloud in under a minute. Linode has hundreds of thousands of customers who are all serviced by their friendly 24-7 customer support team. You can email them, call them, chat with them over IRC, lots of ways to get in touch. They know how important it is to get the help that you need, and they have a suite of amazing guides and support documentation to give you references when you need it. So you don't have to ask a human for help if you don't want to. They have all these great guides to to walk you through what you need to do. Their control panel is extremely easy to use, and it allows you to deploy, boot, resize, snapshot, or clone your virtual servers with just a few clicks. And of course, they offer two-factor authentication to help keep you safe, an increasingly important thing in our crazy world. Linode has fantastic pricing options available. Their plans start one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month, 
And they offer high memory plans starting at 16 gigs of memory if you need that sort of horsepower. As a listener of this show, if you sign up at linode.com slash connected, you'll not only be supporting us, but you'll also get $20 towards any Linode plan. On the one gigabyte of RAM, that's four free months. With a seven-day money-back guarantee, there's nothing to lose. So go to linode.com slash connected to learn more, sign up, and take advantage of that $20 credit, or use the promo code CONNECTED2018 at checkout. Thank you so much to Linode for their support of this show and Relay FM. So it is mid-July, kind of a quiet time for tech news, but the rumor mill is starting up. And we have, of course, things like iPhone and iPad rumors, but there's also a lot of rumors about Macs. And I want to talk to the two of you about this because we are Mac guys and the iOS boys aren't here. <laughs> and they just have to listen to this and suffer through it. Uh, so Ming-Chi Kuo, friend of the show, really at this point, I would say, friend of the network, uh, has um, a new report out. There's the iPhone and iPad stuff in it. Basically what we've heard about the iPhone 3 models uh, what we've assumed about the iPad, ditching the home button, ditching Touch ID, Face ID coming, which is all really great. Uh, but the Mac stuff, I think, is is uh, what we should talk about. So in this report, and I'm just gonna I'm gonna start with the big one: Mac Mini processor upgrades expected yes. what? this yes. fall. What? Unpossible, I tell you. I want I want one. Me too. Uh, mine will not run Mojave, my home media server, uh, and is dying anyways. So I'm in the market. Uh, Federico's been in the market for a long time. If all they do is put new processors in this thing, and they don't, and maybe you know they don't change much else, I would be fine with it. Uh, I would like to have Thunderbolt three in it, uh, even though my Drobo is Thunderbolt two. Um, I would like faster speeds available to me if I upgrade that Drobo at some point. But I just want, I'd be happy with any sign of life on the Mac Mini. I don't expect that this is going to be like what Jason Snell wrote about, about being like super tiny, like totally different. I expect like minimum effort put (laughs) forth by Apple on this Mac Mini. What what do you think? Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, it, it would be cool if it was really super tiny, but I'm not, at least personally, I'm not looking for super tiny. It's, it's small enough as it is. It doesn't take up a lot of space and I just want something that if I get a new Mac Mini, if I get at least a decent configuration, that'll last for another five years. I don't. I use mine as kind of a, a home server, like you do. Not a, not really an entertainment server, but it's there, uh, doing things like running Plex and running Hazel and uh, running DevonThink, where it's doing things like pinging the Mac Stories RSS and creating like a a personal database of every article that's written. S- those sorts of things. I used to, when I worked downtown Chicago, it used to be the Mac that I used to do my side gig when I wasn't working as a lawyer. Um, but now it sits in my basement in a corner, headless, and just does these other things. And I, I, it's getting to the point where it's not going to, it'll run Mojave, but it won't, pro, I, I expect it probably won't run more than one or maybe two more versions of Mac OS. So I'm in the I'm in the market for getting a new one too. Yeah, I feel like I want a Mac Mini, but I don't even know why. I just it, it, there's something about it that just seems so appealing, even though I don't currently have any particular need for one. Like I guess I could offload 
uh, my Plex server uh, to be on a Mac mini instead of my iMac. But I don't think there's anything I've, there's no gap in my world that an iMac mini would fill. I just feel like it's such a neat computer. I just kind of want one. <laughs> you, well, <laughs> you know, assuming it's upgraded, you know, uh, refreshed in any way, shape or form. You can have it run your unit tests in the background. That is true. That is actually a very good point. I didn't even think about that. But yes, you're exactly right. That is that is legitimately something that could be done with it. I could set up an Xcode build, build server if I so desired. Yeah. And maybe the quad core would come back and really help you out with all that, all that work. Yeah, something like uh, that. While we're dreaming, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, up next, we have uh, notebooks. We have a MacBook Pro processor upgrades expected. So Intel has six core CPUs that Apple could be using. They're ready now. You can buy them in a bunch of Windows notebooks. Uh, I don't know where the Apple community started thinking that Intel didn't have CPUs ready. Like, they're ready. Uh, and Apple just needs to integrate them and, and get the power and heat you know everything they got to do right but they are out there uh so i would love to see what a six core 15 inch macbook pro could look like that machine is not for me um i have a 2015 15 inch and i really think i'm probably gonna go back to a 13 uh with the new ones i I like having the 15 when i'm at my destination but i hate traveling with it and i think i'm gonna just kind of give up some screen space for something that's more portable but there are people john including you who like you work on a MacBook Pro workstation, right? Like you have a display and a keyboard and mouse, but it's powered by a MacBook Pro. And that, I think, by far is the most common Pro Mac setup. And having more cores on a machine that's plugged in all the time uh, would be great. And so I hope Apple does that. Uh, that Intel CPU could also come to the iMac, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Um but, of course, the question is, what do they do with the keyboard? Do we think that a revised MacBook Pro uh, is going to have the same keyboard that they've now more or less, you know, opened a repair extension program for and have admitted they were bad? Or, I mean, I, I think they've got to have some improvement. Uh, what do you think? I think it'll probably be a lightly revised version of what we already have. Like, I don't see them ditching... I always get this wrong. It's the butterfly switches that are current. Is that correct? And it was scissor switches before, right? Do I have that right? Yeah. Okay. Yep, yep. So I, I don't see them ditching the butterfly switches. I know that's probably going to make a lot of people angry, but if if it were me, I would guess that they would revise or refine the switches in such a way that you know a microscopic speck of dust wouldn't utterly incapacitate an entire key slash computer. But I think for those of us who are waiting for the return to the 2015 style keyboards, I think you're waiting, you're going to be waiting for a long time, a long time for a train that just ain't coming. So we'll see what happens. But I would expect that we're going to see, you know, a refresh sooner rather than later. In fact, I would be slightly surprised if they didn't make it in time for uh, college, you know, purchasing, which is happening now and especially over the next month or so. So who knows what will actually happen, but I think we'll get, you know, beefier processors, maybe more and or beefier RAM, maybe uh, more and or beefier SSDs. And I think we'll get a lightly revised version of the keyboard. Yeah, I agree with you. It's not going to be what we've had. It'll it'll be something new, probably a variant of, of this butterfly design, but one that I think is is more forgiving to a single atom of dust. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think they do need to do something with the keyboards, but I don't think it's going to be something that's completely out of the ordinary. I, I definitely want more cores, though, especially having just finished editing multiple episodes of interview uh episodes for app stories the more cores the better i mean i you know when i'm processing audio four cores is great but more would be better yeah and remember on the 13 inch they're all dual core and in the same family of intel processors there is a quad core that apple could use in the 13 inch and if they do that that would be the machine i buy quad core to get that power for when i do edit on the road and 13 inch so i can actually use it on an airplane or use it uh someplace so i don't have a table um, the MacBook is also in this report with a processor upgrade. Uh, yes, please. Like my, my wife has an original MacBook. I would like to upgrade her. The current one is nice. It's better than what she's got, but I really like one more jump. Uh, I don't think the MacBook is going to change past that. They're not going to add a second port. They're not going to reduce the price drastically and make it the new MacBook Air. I think the MacBook is kind of on this sidetrack of if you really want a thin and light, this is what we have to offer uh, but the the trade-off is power, of course. And so any any additional power they can put into that tiny body would be uh, welcomed by many, I think. Including you, Casey, right? You're a MacBook One user. Yeah, I, I love my uh, MacBook Adorable, my MacBook One. And I bought this uh, just after WWDC last year. And really, I, I wouldn't say that I feel constrained by the power that often. There are certainly moments that it happens, but day-to-day I, I'm not. That being said, if there was a even moderate spec bump in terms of processing, in terms of the CPU, I would probably try to scrape together the money to get a new one and hand this one off to Aaron because Aaron's using a many year old MacBook Air that has been underwater a couple times. I have no idea how that yeah. happened, none at all. Weird. And so, um, <laughs> and so, it's probably time for her to get an upgrade anyway. And so, I would pass this down to her and get myself a new one if at all possible. But we'll see what happens. I mean, again, it's it's not something that I feel I desperately need, but any little bit would help. And I think I I think I got that kind of from underscore uh, from David Smith, who uses a MacBook as his travel computer almost always. And he is basically getting new ones every single time they spec bump in any way, shape or form, just to eke out that little extra bit of performance whenever he can. Yeah. Which I think is totally reasonable because they have made pretty big gains um, with the MacBook, but yeah. it's so far behind the other machines because they use that, that, that slower you know, core and processor. It'd be nice to see, to see more. Um, in that vein, this rumor has, this is the most wishy-washy part to me, a new low-priced notebook believes that Apple is designing something new for this to replace the MacBook Air, which, you know, sits in that very coveted $1,000 price point. You know, originally he had said that the MacBook Air was going to get an update, and it seems like maybe he's changed his mind there. This is something new. This is really interesting to me because if you make a small retina notebook, you've made the MacBook. <laughs> and if you make a slightly thicker retina machine, you've made the 13-inch MacBook Pro. So like part of that yeah. is a branding problem because I truly believe the non-touch bar 13-inch two-port machine should be the MacBook Air. It's, it uses the same class of processors. The MacBook Air uses the 15-watt TDP where the touch bar machines use a uh, higher TDP uh, processor. The naming's all screwed up, but something new to hit that price point. 
Um, you know, what could Apple take? Say they start with the MacBook. What could they take away to make a machine cheaper? And I honestly don't know. Like, make it out of plastic, I guess. But I don't think Apple really wants to do that anymore. You can't take any ports away because it has one port. You can't make it any smaller because it's only 12 inches. Yeah, what do you do? And so I'd, I'd struggle to see what this product could be, but I'm very interested in it because Apple needs a machine that $1,000 price point or even below. Remember the 11-inch MacBook Air even dipped to $899. Seeing what they could do there now I think would be really interesting to see. It's not a machine for me, per se, but it's a machine that I want to exist because we've all had this situation, right? If someone asks you, what machine should I buy for my kid? And like, I honestly just tell them the MacBook Air nine times out of 10 because it's reliable. It has a bunch of ports. They don't need dongles. But I'm like, I'm, well, you've got to buy a four-year-old computer, right? Like it has old processors and old you know, slow RAM and slower disk access. And that kind of stinks, but there's really nothing. There's not another good answer right now, and Apple needs a good answer to that. And so I, I really hope this pans out. I hope there's something good here, and that people are attracted. Yeah, I don't to know. It. I just don't feel like there's a big gap, just like you like you said. And I don't want to take the attention away from my beloved adorable. I just want new adorables. <laughs> it is adorable. Um, come to the iMac, a significant display upgrade along a processor update. Again, they could bring that 6-core to the high-end iMac. That would put it near the iMac Pro in terms of cores, but it's a different different type of processor that's doing different things. So I think there's still room to separate the iMac and iMac Pro. But the significant display upgrade is interesting, and uh, Steve Trout-Smith tweeted earlier that he thinks this means 120 hertz ProMotion coming to the uh, the iMac he was unsure about the bandwidth needed for that, um, but uh, th- that may be problematic there. It may not even be possible yet. But Apple's done some tricky stuff with like Retina displays, like using kind of two internal connectors to drive the, the display, and maybe something custom they could do. But it does feel like if 120 hertz ProMotion is coming to any Mac, that it would be the iMac or iMac Pro now. Uh, the, the Mac Pro later because people are developing content for displays that refresh that quickly now and the Mac can't do it. And if you want to create content and really see what it's going to be like, having the device you create the content on and the device the content will play on, having the same capabilities, of course, would be really, really great and really helpful. So this makes sense to me. But again, uh, it seems like t- the technology, at least what's on the market now, can't make this possible, but you know Apple sort of excels at doing like weird Mac display stuff, and uh, maybe they could maybe they could make it work somehow. Is that something, Stephen, that you think would, that would be useful to you when you're doing your YouTube videos? Uh, no, I don't think so because um, I don't. So in video, really, like high the highest frame rate most people upload is sixty. I think right. that may be the highest you can go to on YouTube actually, sixty frames per second. Um, I film and edit in 30 because I don't like the way 60 looks. And actually, 120 hertz like ProMotion makes me sick to my stomach, so I have it turned off on my iPad. Uh, right. So I don't really care about this. But I'm thinking more about like people making like VR content okay. and games where that higher refresh rate is more important. And uh, so maybe maybe there's room there for those type of users. I, I don't know if it means um, uh, if it's a big deal to to like movie people, but right. 
I don't know. I just don't see the. I I just don't see the bandwidth there. Like uh, no, I haven't seen anyone crunch the numbers, which is exactly what uh, Steve Trout Smith said. But I that that is just a tremendous amount of data that has to happen very 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 quickly and. I am super skeptical that today, I'm not saying forever, but today I'm very, very doubtful that we have anything that can push that kind of bandwidth. It's a lot of data, man. There's <laughs> a lot yeah, of data. It really is. They could do it on the iPad because Apple is in charge of everything in there, right? And it's a smaller display, of course. When you're dealing with other manufacturers, that's harder to do. And even to drive the 27-inch Retina displays, they're using a custom timing controller and... uh so they can do certain things, but again, if there's just a limitation of like how many electrons you can move in a second, that maybe not even Apple can can reach that yet. But it's, it's one to keep an eye on. Um, I've saved the Apple Watch for last because I think it's um, in some ways more interesting than the Mac stuff. I don't really mean that, but just in the sense that like <laughs> he's talking about real, real like form factor changes. So two new models and sizes at 39.9 millimeters and 45.2 millimeters right now. And forever, the Apple Watch has been 38 and 42 millimeter um, with enhanced heart rate detection, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, We had an email from a connected listener wondering when we thought an Apple Watch redesign was going to happen. And my answer was, I kind of think it's this year. Like We've seen now really four models with the same design. In fact, they've gotten a little bit thicker over time. It's it's imperceptible to the human eye, but you know, it is there. But it just feels even if the thickness was the same, the design just looks dated. Like I don't see many Apple Watches in the wild, but over the last three or four months, when I do see them, uh, I kinda have uh, fallen out of love with the way it looks on people's wrist and including my own, just because it's been the same for such a long time. And if they make it bigger, does that, you know, they have more surface area, does it allow them to make it thinner? Does it give them the ability to do something more interesting with the design? Uh, I don't know, but it feels like to me, at least, we're due for something to change here, right? I think it's coming sooner rather than later, but I don't know if I really... In- if I really dig these new sizes now, of course it could come from shrinking bezels, but uh, which is what I would prefer, but I have, I have pretty small wrists and I think that the 42 millimeter is probably at the upper edge of what I can put on my wrist without it looking really ridiculous. And I think for Aaron, the 38 millimeter that she has today is the same thing, like any, not any bigger. And it's going to be kind of weird looking. I do think it would be nice to have something thinner. I do think it would be nice to have something that maybe looked a little different, but I don't want to lose the band clasp size, which I mean, certainly it can get a lot thinner and still use the same uh, band setup, or at least just by yeah. eyeballing it anyway. But I am I am not liking the idea of the surface area of the watch getting bigger, which is not what this says. It just says that 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 it will be bigger. It doesn't say if that's the screen, the surface area, or what. But the idea of a physically larger watch, a display, fine, but a physically larger watch, eh, sitting here now, I'm not into it. But we'll see if it happens, and we'll see how big it is if and when it happens. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I could... S- I really want my Apple Watch to get thinner. I want it to be, you know, maybe half as thin as it, as it is right now. Uh, and if you look at the bezels, I could see, I bet if you did the math, that this, if you brought this edge to edge, it would be pretty close to what is predicted here. 
Um, but I agree. I, I don't see putting a larger surface area watch on my wrist. I mean, 42 millimeters is about, about as much as I personally would want. Yeah. So we'll see where it ends up. You know, I think it's something is, it's time for something to change. So I guess, I guess we will see. I'm really happy with the series three. You know, Same. I, it's really, really fast. The battery life's incredible. Yep. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't want them to give any of that up in what we'll call the series four, but, um, you know, again, Apple's really good at making things, uh, especially like iOS devices, much more energy efficient. And that's how you get thinner, right? You can have less battery and silver at the same time. Look at the iPad, right? It's been 10 hours forever because it's gotten more efficient and they can pack everything in tighter and get smaller, but not give it the battery life. So I expect the Apple Watch to follow that recipe eventually. Maybe not this year, but eventually. Well, I think that does it for episode 200 of Connected. Um John, where can people find you on the internet? So they can find me on Twitter at J-O-H-N-V-O-O-R-H-W-E-S. That's John Voorhees. And, of course, always on MacStories.net writing and podcasting over at AppStories.net. And Casey, what about you? Sure, you can find me on the internet at CaseyList.com, on Twitter at, as CaseyList, that's C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S. And uh, you can also hear me talk with my friends uh, Marco Arment and John Syracusa on ATP, the Accidental Tech Podcast at atp.fm. You can also, if you wanted to hear thoughts and feelings from me and your co-founder, Mike Hurley, you can hear me on this very podcasting network on Relay FM at Analog, uh, which is a show that Mike and I have been doing since the very first day of Relay. Uh, and so you should check that out. And it'll be you and I on the next episode. So that'll be that's fun. That's true. Yes, that, that oh, is exactly nice. right. So, talk about our feelings. Yep, as as you and I do. I mean, we never talk about Max, you and me. It's just feelings. That's right. Or cars. A lot of car talk. <laughs> well, I'd like to thank our sponsors this week, Squarespace, Casper, and Linode. If you want to go check them out or any of the other links in the show notes, we've, things we've talked about, head over to the website, relay.fm slash connected slash 200. Those links are also in the podcast app you're using to listen to us on your iPhone. So go check those out. Uh, if you're not familiar with John and Casey, I don't know how you're not, but go follow them on Twitter. Go read their stuff. Uh, guys, thank you for joining me today. Um, but in our tradition, uh, we have to say goodbye in turns. So, uh, gentlemen, say goodbye. I'll see you later. Arrivederci. <laughs> 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 oh boy oh, well uh i tried federico's gonna kill me for yeah, that well adios <laughs>